The following is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. Spawn number 14 skipped the month of September 1993 as part of its roughly consistent five-week publishing schedule to arrive on October the 4th. Image titles launched that same month included Prophet and Vanguard, as well as the one-shots Image Zero and Deathmate Black. The latter is a harbinger of doom as Deathmate is widely considered to be one of the main books precipitating the speculator bust. This part one was dedicated to Jim Salakrup, Todd's former editor on the Spider-Man titles. The Violator wants to tell a story to three young boys, his version of a story. Do those names mean anything? Not Are to me. Are those any writers in particular? Or? Yeah, if there was an in-joke there, I didn't catch it. From what I gathered is the Violator wants to tell a story of this evil wizard, as he puts it, and how he was sent from the other place to take care of this evil wizard he actually has to bribe the kids it was really weird it was very unviolent i mean he does mention murdering the kids for making fun of him i don't know, it just seemed kind of weird this is the violator wanting to tell a story about medieval spawn i think that spawn was still going out to like walmart and stuff when this issue came out and okay. he drops the pussy bomb in there which is like he calls the kids pussies and it's like what well their pussy attitude wasn't it something like that something like that it's like yeah. todd are you just trying to sabotage the line at this point huh, i didn't even think about that the story about how he's going to fight this evil wizard and his evil mother. But of course, what we're shown is medieval Spawn being praised as a hero amongst the commoners because he's using his power for good. And I guess Mal Bolger doesn't like that. I mean, that's what I got just from the first because this is a two-parter. So That okay. story confused me too because I was still working on the assumption that Violator was telling at least a variation on the truth. But the entire story is told from his twisted perspective. So even though he was running around killing all the townspeople ripping out their hearts he's pretending like he was spawn that was doing that and the yeah. evil witch mother is actually the sister or the lover of medieval spawn i don't know if they ever clarify that the pictures are telling the real story as best as i can tell and then violator is just telling whatever bullshit he wants to tell to these kids yeah well he's manipulating the story he's making himself the hero he's being sent here to destroy this evil wizard and then of course we see al he's now regretting divulging himself to chapel because he was talking about how what he had for him, you know, what was helping him out is everyone thought he was dead. So he could kind of get away with the shit he was doing. But now that Chapel knows he's alive, Chapel might talk, which is now going to endanger Wanda in her life. So they kind of allude to that as well. Done fucked up. And so that was pretty much it. I mean, it's the build up to the two-parter. The Violator is going to be a badass. And I like the way he kind of tells the story. It's like, you know, he shows up to town and the people all love him. And he's actually murdering people. He's going around killing people. And, you know, he's just basically uh, manipulating the story to make himself sound like a hero. This was also the issue where they revealed that Sam and Twitch were no longer on desk yeah. duty. They had been cleared of any wrongdoing in the death of Billy Kincaid, and now they were going to start investigating the man in the red cape. And they go down to the alleyway. I just say Spawn Alley because that's the name of the place. Spawn there. Alley, yeah. Um, and they start kind of harassing you know, the homeless gentleman because Spawn talks about how they're getting ready for the night and they all got to stake their claim. I mean, it really doesn't go into more detail than that. Uh, I mean, it was okay. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of interested. I'll probably read the second one right away so I can be ready for the next episode of our show. Are you asking me if the writing is getting better or? I personally feel like these are two you... issues, 14 and 15, are among the worst of Spawn so far. I actually hated them more than Spawn number 11 as a combined story. Really? 
Really? Yeah, I, I just hated the story. I didn't think story. they were that bad. I, I thought it was stupid. I actually read these issues months ago. Why? And I repeatedly, because the spawnometer was due months ago and we're late. Uh, so I read them months ago and they were awful. And I like read the first part and then there was like a few months where I sat on the second part because we hadn't recorded any more spawnometer stuff. And I was in no rush yeah. to read it. And I finally did read it. And at one point I told you, just don't worry about reading it. Uh, I'll, I'll just cover it in a synopsis. So I'm glad you liked it more than me because I freaking hated these I, issues. I mean, they're not fantastic or anything. I mean, I'll, I'm going to read them. I mean, they're interesting. The writing is getting a little better. I mean, I like, you know, this is definitely a world builder issue with Malbolgia and Violator. So I was fine with it. I, you and I just have very different tastes. Well, I know you really like that one issue with Sims, and I was just like, I hated that issue. So my, this my was big... definitely your action hero, popcorn movie type. There's lots of action. There's build up. So I don't know. I'll, I'll read the next one. For me, it's the entire story is being told by an unreliable narrator. So I can't say for certain that anything the uh, Violators tells anybody is the truth and it's a story about medieval spawn i don't give a shit about medieval spawn so i remember thinking it was a cool toy i mean i like the garthina's story art that little mini series he did with the medieval spawn so i mean nah, i'm fine it's it's just another spawn character though at that time i thought it was kind of weird because the violator says he's only 800 years old i so... think that the story takes place 800 years ago i'm not sure that he's not okay older so than that. Uh, the more we read it i want to know more the time frame of how like how old are these characters like i, I know mal bulge and them are probably going to be around since the beginning no no, no yeah they did do miniseries with the violator I, just, I, I think the violator is an interesting character we'll finish it up when we get the second one I've been reading Image Comics, The Road to Independence by George Corey, which was very critical of 1986 Marvel. It tries to posit this opinion that Jim Shooter was running Marvel into the ground and all the comics from that time period were trash and that Marvel comics were saved by the vitality of the image creators. That really pissed me off because I loved Marvel comics during their 25th anniversary when they had the borders and everything. And I was wondering, maybe I was, I was looking at it through nostalgic goggles and I was like, maybe those comics just weren't as good as I remembered. So I went ahead and made a point of looking to see what Marvel comics came out in 1986. That's a member berries coming up. This was the last full year of Jim Shooter as editor-in-chief at Marvel. Comics include Daredevil Born Again. You still had John Byrne on both Fantastic Four and The Hulk, although admittedly Jim Shooter ran off John Byrne, although Byrne was already going off to Superman anyway. G.I. Joe was still in its prime, I felt, in that time period, in 86. You had Peter David on Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, including the Death of Gina Wolf story arc. Okay, that's a good one. Simonson's still on Thor. Mike Zek and Stephen Grant on The Punisher, the miniseries. You've got John Romita Jr. on The X-Men. You've got the launch of X-Factor. Epic's still going strong, particularly with Electra which was also running with oh, Bill yeah. Sinkevich. The Nam getting launched. The Scourge of the Underworld story arc in Captain America. I'm picking up on trade. I saw that they tra- they have it in trade yeah. on. I want to read it. Yeah. The Under Siege arc, which is one of uh, many Avengers fans' favorite story arcs ever produced during the Roger Stern, John Rishima period. And you also have the launch of Star Comics, which I'm sure a lot of older fans didn't give shit about, but it was an opportunity to give kids' comics back to the kids, especially around that time period Harvey had folded. So no more Richie Rich, no more Casper, and so Marvel was trying to go after that audience that without instead of letting those kids get left behind and yet archie survived 
Now, some cons is a whole bunch of books that had uh, fans that loved them got canceled to make room for the new universe, which people generally consider to be major flop. There's a lot of people, a lot of hatred for the new universe. I have affection for it. I know a lot of people in my age range have affection for the new universe, but there are a lot of people that also I hate the new it. universe. I, I like it. But they Star canceled, Brian. but they, yeah, right. But they canceled Power Man and Iron Fist and Star Wars to make way for the new universe, which pissed a lot of people off. You had the week launches of magazines like Amazing High Adventure, Dakota North, Savage Tales, and the revised Strange tales but i still think 86 was a perfectly grand year i thought 87 was a good year too and actually what i found was that it was around 88 that things started to go to shit which is the first full year of tom defalco as editor-in-chief so i would have to say that mr Corey was full of shit by going after general shooter in his last year if you want to shit on Seer wars too fine if you want to shit on him being a dictator fine but don't shit on the comic it seemed like a fine year yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, where the fuck are you coming at this shit from? I think that a few years before the Image Guys got hot and a few years after the Image Guys left were some of the worst years in, in Marvel history. And that goes down to the editorial teams and the fact that a lot of it was them being built up by the artwork. And a yeah. lot of us looking over shit because the artwork was so good. But speaking of the artwork being good, let's talk a little bit about Wills Portacio. I'm Stan Lee. Wills Portacio has been working at Marvel for, what is it, eight years now, and <laughs> this is the first time I've met you? I mean, that's ridiculous. I've, I've actually seen a picture of you, so I feel we're close. So, you know. You've seen a picture <laughs> of me and you still stayed at the job, did you? Well, that's incredible. William Wills Portacio is well-known and respected both in the U.S. and in the Philippines as a comic book writer and artist, noted for his work on such titles as The Punisher, X-Factor, Uncanny X-Men, Iron Man, Wetworks, and Spawn. Where are you from originally? I was um, born in the Philippines, uh -huh. the Philippine Islands. And most Filipinos are shy, and especially if you're an artist, you're doubly shy. And, uh, and, and then if you grew up as a scrawny little kid, you're triply shy. <laughs> so I was always in the back. I'm a Navy brat, so I grew up on military bases. I was in a place called Midway Island. Two Mile Island, where only one-eighth of the island is covered with cement. The rest of the island is wooded and restricted area. Well, I was a 14-year-old kid. So we found all the pillboxes. We found all the artillery installations. In order to join my club, you had to find your own bayonet shovel. So I had a, a blast in the restricted area. And that was a big uh, World War II battle. And so I, I would spend my Sundays just in the library reading about military escapades and stuff, what the soldiers went through, you know, being shot down over the Pacific and trying to get back into civilization and stuff like that. And I've always wanted to do those kind of stories. And that's where I got a lot of my ideas for Wetworks and other stuff, and, and even Bishop from uh, the X-Men. But see, uh, my father, who, who is Filipino too, my whole family is Filipino. He's in the U.S. Navy. So when I was two years old, we were transferred to the States and all around the Pacific Rim, all around the West Coast. So mm -hmm. I've always been a, a West Coast laid-back kind of guy. My first love actually was science fiction. I, I used to, um, my, my father would, as I was a kid, would... would get these science fiction novels from the university that, that he helped out at and um, I would read those and I would try to because I would see that in my head as I read it I would try to draw them and that's how I really started um, um, developing my storytelling and my drawing sense for comics and stuff. Since my sixth grade in Hawaii I had a teacher an art teacher 
who then knew all the other art teachers in high school and in college. And so they all followed me and made sure I got this strict training in art. When I got into high school, I started entering contests, national drawing contests, poster contests, yearbook cover contests. If there's a National Scholastic Art Awards show, which I entered all the time, when you start winning those, then you start building the confidence. You start getting sure of yourself. How as old were you when you knew you wanted to draw when you started doing it? When I was in first grade. You know how you know, the teacher <laughs> comes around, you know, really? gives you a piece of paper, yeah. gives you crayons, say, all right, kids, draw something. Oh, Patty, that, that's real nice. Uh, what is it? And the kid will explain. She goes, oh, yeah. Came to me. And she goes, oh, wow, Will, did you see the Saturn V rockets lift off that day? And I go, yeah. We've had a number of Filipino artists working for us at our comic book company and our uh, animation studio. I would say just about all of them are superb artists. And is there something special about the Philippines? I mean, do they concentrate on artwork there or something? Um, we get more Filipino good artists than, than from any other country. I think, you know, this is just me mm -hmm. supposing... I know you uh, can't talk for the whole country. Right. Real briefly, the Philippines has been conquered and conquered and conquered by the Japanese, by the Spaniards, everybody. So the mood in the Philippines has always been what I call apolitical. You know, they've seen governments yeah. come and go, no matter yeah. how drastic. So everybody concentrates on personalities, on relationships. I think any artist is actually boiled down that. He's showing himself. You know, yeah. in, in every drawing he does, a confident artist is constantly showing how he thinks thinks the world is. I mean, if he's in a depressed mood, he'll show depressed drawings. But he's, again, showing himself. And the Philippines is very much like that. It's very emotional. Um, oh, that's the word. Because there's a lot of motion, emotion in all of your artwork and all of the Filipino artists I know. There is emotion in it. There's a lot of feeling. Yeah, yeah one of the things I love about the Philippines is that with the language, you can talk for 10 minutes, you can talk for an hour and not really say anything. But there's a Sounds lot of like emotions... Me. <laughs> but see, you're one of the best. <laughs> but there is that emotion there. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's the emotion. So I think that carries through with people who seem to have a talent. If you believe in God-given talents, they're in this society which is, is very emotional. And, and when you do something nice, everybody reacts. Your friends are always there. He discovered the world of comic book superheroes at the age of 10. My next-door neighbor, Pinay, she came to me and she goes, Oi, mahili ka ba ng comics? I go, yeah. So she brought me into her house and then there was a closet and she opened up and there was all these, I found out later on, really, really good comic books. Uh -huh. I mean, from some of the great artists of the time. Right. And so I grabbed it all and then hours later I hear arguing. Ah, oh my gosh, yes, because she, she gave away it. her husband's yeah. comic book collection. Where do you get your inspiration from? Where um, were some of your favorite artists from when you were younger? It was... The the, what I would call the 60s brat pack. Neil Adams, Jack Kirby, Gene Colan. When you were first breaking into the industry, what were the hardest obstacles that you had to overcome? It's going to sound funny. There were really no obstacles because I was just one of those lucky young students that by the time I was in high school, I was ready already to get in the comics. And so to get in the comics wasn't actually the hardship for me. I mean, the, the skill set. That was already developed for, for me since sixth grade. So just getting in, just a matter of showing my portfolio. I was just very lucky also, knock on wood, I've been very fortunate in my life, that the year that I went to San Diego Comic-Con to show my portfolio, every single one of the Marvel editors were there actually looking to hire. I truly believe luck has a lot to do with everything, and almost every single successful person I know, no matter what field, luck. Mm -hmm.
Now, what doesn't get talked about very much, though, is Scott Williams, who was also an Army brat. He moved to Hawaii at the age of 12. He met Wills while he was in high school. There was about a four-year age difference. I think Wills was 14 and Scott Williams was 18. Uh, he used to describe Wills Portacio as gangly, shy. He let his artwork do the talking. He's a freshman. I'm right. a senior. He's got 10 times the talent that I could ever hope to have. So Williams was the comic book guy, the main comic book guy. Portacio was more of a pure illustrator. Scott Williams' stated influences include Neil Adams, Jack Kirby, John Buscema, Bernie Wrightson, and Barry Windsor Smith. Portacio's stated influences include Neil Adams, Gil Kane, Barry Windsor Smith, Moebius, Mike Mignola, Bill Sienkiewicz, and Mike Golden. I think that he also has underrecognized influences from the likes of Bernie Wrightson, Mike Kaluta, oh, yeah. Art Adams, Kevin Nolan, Larry Stroman, Frank Sorokin. According to Wills Portacio, he wasn't exposed to a lot of Filipino artists growing up, but he has similarities in art style to a lot of those artists. I, I can see Tony Dezuniga. I can see Rudy Nebrez. So I, I think that even if he didn't actually see the art, maybe there's something culturally or some art that he was exposed to there because you can see a through line between those. And, and of course, Gene Colan, who he's also referenced as being an influence of his that he loved. Portacio moved to the Philippines after his father retired from the Navy while Williams went on to go to art college. Williams began attending San Diego Comic-Con every year as of 1980 because he was trying to break into the industry as hard as he could. Portacio was stuck in a third world country where he didn't even speak the language. So he set aside comics pretty much the entire time he was back in the Philippines to focus on creating his own style because he hated that he would look at John Byrne he would draw like John Byrne. He'd look at Jack Kirby and he'd draw like Jack Kirby and he didn't want to be a clone. He wanted to be his own man and have his own style. So he didn't look at comics for like the four years he was back in the Philippines and he was also focusing on go to school as an architect at one point if I recall correctly. There wasn't a comic industry in the Philippines anymore. The industry had basically collapsed because companies like Marvel had hired all the Filipino artists away. Portacio had to make do with the occasional copy of Heavy Metal, but he also had a lot of exposure to manga and anime. He felt that the Philippines lacked a culture of its own because they'd been conquered by so many other countries, and so he became fixated on Japanese culture. Portacio intentionally flunked out of art school around age 21 because he just wanted to do something else with his life. It was like an act of rebellion, he said. He, he, the one act of rebellion he had against his father. My dad retired from the Navy, so we went back to the Philippines. We lived there for about four years. Years. I came out of high school there and, okay, I got to do something now, right? I was a straight-A student, Asian family, I got to be a doctor, I got to be a lawyer, but I want to do art. And they go, okay, we'll give you one shot. So I go back to San Diego, go back to the stateside, to San Diego where my aunt was, and I start doing a portfolio. Did the whole Hobbit cast and do and did all these pieces. And then my cousin goes, hey, there's San Diego Comic Con happening. You know, he dragged me over there, pulling my, my portfolio. Three months later, he met Marvel editor Carl Potts at San Diego Comic Con 1983, who hired him and developed him. Uh, both Carl Potts and Brent Anderson tutored Wills Portacio in comic book artwork, but they were impressed with his basic style very much. He was hired as an inker because they didn't feel like he was ready to tell stories with his artwork. He didn't know how to do that. Ivan, there's so much stuff here. Is there one memorabilia or collectible here that is your favorite framed up there that's an art adams print okay it was oh, the one where this is above yeah the, oh. it was his very very first print wow okay wow. it was my first job i was an inker on long shot the limited yeah. series yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. while i was waiting to do punisher because i had a few things to learn about star trek storytelling you got to tell a story i just want a job <laughs> you know so while i was waiting i took the inking job of mm -hmm. inking art adams and art adams, that was his first book me and Art talked for a while, and then Art said, here, here, there's, 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 there's a poster. Mm -hmm. They weren't called prints back then. He goes, here's a poster. And he goes, oh, cool. And he rolled it up and, right. and took it home. 
Through the years, I hadn't realized that they were in the garage this whole time. So when I look at it and you can see it, it's the first print. <laughs> he gave me the very first print of his first print set. So Portacio got the uh, long shot inking gig on Arthur Adams' first big project, but he was overwhelmed with the level of detail Adams was putting into his artwork, and he was just unfamiliar with comics. He hadn't looked at comics in years. So Scott Williams and Wills Portacio got reacquainted at the Marvel table during San Diego Comic-Con 1984. Williams offered to move to San Diego to help Portacio to work on Longshot doing the inking. Portacio also reached out to him, so I'm not sure whose idea it was. He was in San Diego, was just starting to get work. He called me out and said, come on down, I need some help. I need some assistant work. Hey, I can do that. Both of them worked on Alien Legion over art by Frank Sirocco, and they also both worked on the comic book Strike Force Moratory. At some point, I was offered a series, and Strike Force Moratory was one of those series, relatively unknown, obviously. It's not the X Men, <laughs> it's not it was the Justice Guardians, League. It, it was, was the Guardians of the Galaxy at of its best, day, right? I mean, at best, it was it was a, it was a new series, but it, it was it was. Well thought of, it's considered a minor, no, it's actually, very minor classic now. No, We're no. talking very minor classic. It taught me the discipline of doing monthly work. Did you ever read Strike Force Mortuary? No. A little before your time. That was a book that confused me because it came out around the same time as the New Universe books, and I always wanted to think that it was a New Universe title. But if you read it and you know anything about the New Universe, you know that was just a complete misconception because it was set in a future. There was not any of the Marvel alternate futures. It was just a futuristic series, but it was a standalone book. should have been an epic comic. Yeah, it, it made no sense for it to be a mainstream Marvel comic, aside from wanting to get it on the newsstand and not to have to pay creator credits to Peter B. Gillis and Brent Anderson, who came up with the concept. So the idea is actually really fascinating. In the future, creatures sort of like the Predators have conquered the Earth. But they're, they don't create their own shit. They're basically like scavengers, and so they just steal and, and rape and pillage while they're on the Earth. And humans are just too weak to do anything against these aliens. So the humans come up with a process that gives you superhuman powers. And the first group of these mortuary guys were called the Black Watch. And in the first issue of the comic book, you're going back and forth between the real world, where the artist produced by Brent Anderson being inked by Scott Williams. And I'll, I'll tell you this, I don't know if Brent Anderson ever looked better than when Scott Williams was inking him. But they were also, the lead character was reading a comic book about the Black Watch, which was penciled and inked by Wills Portacio. And he still wasn't quite up to speed when he was first doing those Strike Force More 3 pages. But it told this glamorized story of what happened to the Black Watch. But the truth was, they died in their first mission. And one of the reasons why they died is it turned out the process that gave them their superhuman powers also gave them a one-year life sentence. They had up to one year to live before their powers burned out and killed them. The Black Watch, one of the members was actually killed by the aliens, but the other two members was killed when one of them spontaneously combusted from his powers going into overdrive and killing him and the explosion killed the other member of the Black Watch. It's a big reveal in the first issue of Strike Force Mortuary that hey we're bringing you into this program kid but if you do take part in this you'll burn 10 times as bright for one year at most and then you're going to die. And it was, it was a good book especially the first year. I think that it fell apart after the first year because they put a lot of time into developing the characters when they're first introducing them and then you know that you've got a certain amount of time with these guys before they're going to die off and then once they cycled through all that first group of people they never developed the other characters as well. The series did perpetuate very well. You don't work at home. You work in a studio somewhere? Yeah, we actually have the, uh, the modern equivalent to the bullpen that you created. <laughs> um, it, it's called Almond Studios. And in the studio... Um, Is that in San Diego? In San Diego. Uh -huh. Jim Lee's in there, Scott yeah. Williams, a fantastic painter, Joe Chido, he's in there. He's actually working on Daredevil, yeah, uh, yeah. Black Widow piece. Other artists have been invited over and other artists have expressed interest in coming in, so we'll be expanding our space. So while Wolf Portacio was still trying to get his foot in as a penciler, he was continuing to work with Carl Potts, who himself was one quarter Asian. I think he's like two different nationalities. Like He was like half Asian, but like one quarter is like Japanese and one quarter is like Korean or something. Everybody, when I do interviews, they always are like searching for that 
that, okay, I'm Asian, so obviously there's these barriers and stuff, right? Well, the industry is so small. Oh, you can do it. Oh, great. You know, if you were a purple people eater, but you could draw the pages, they'll let you in. But I did have a little bit of that. It's when Carl Potts was the guy who discovered me. He was the ex, uh, no, the Punisher editor at the time. Well, he discovered me in San Diego, and then he discovered Jim in St. Louis. Missouri. But actually, about the same time, I think it was just a week apart, then Jim made the move to go to college in Berkeley. So now he was on California. So Carl calls me up and he goes, hey, you got to meet this new guy, Jim, and he's Asian. You guys will get along. <laughs> and, you know, we did get along. I mean, you know, I called up Jim. Well, I, I think I was, I, I, called, I called up Jim and, and then we talked a little for a little bit on the phone. And then he was thinking about, you know, getting closer to other professionals. Yeah. And there were a lot of professionals professionals in San Diego at the time because of San Diego con. And so Scott Williams and I convinced him to move down to San Diego and we formed our first little studio in a one bedroom apartment in a two bedroom and then we did homage and then we did Wall Street. And Scott was like the token Asian because he was from Hawaii. For my generation it's the same. It's Jack Kirby and um, Stan Lee. Not only did they do fantastic comics, fantastic writing, fantastic art, but a lot of people don't remember, but Stan used to have a soapbox. He used to have a little column within the books, and he pubbed everything up. He made everything seem so exciting. He gave everybody nicknames, you know, and then he, he talked about a bullpen so uh, where all the artists got together and they all drew. And so um, it, when I got in, that was the very first thing I did. I go, Jim Lee, Scott Williams, come on, let's, let's do a studio. And we ran it out of an apartment, and you know, Amish Studios was born, and that became Wildstorm. Moving to San Diego, starting to work with Wills. Hey, let's get together. I've got a loft up in my, up in my uh, condominium. Let's let's work together. Okay, so now we got a little micro team of me and Will. So it's, it's, we, you can call us a studio, call us whatever you want. We just we were just a couple of lonely guys that wanted to work together and have fun and stuff. And then uh, Jim Lee comes in. He's doing some work with Will. Then I start doing some work with him. And at some point, he just starts to catch fire. And at that point, I'm going, okay, dude, you're not going anywhere. We're going to be like this little group here. We're going to be a team. And we kind of all kind of agreed to it at the same time. It's like, yeah, this, we kind of got, we all have similar it's interests. Working. It's working. We have similar yeah. interests. We, have, we, we like the same art. We like the same movies. We like the same source material. In fact, we like the same source material so much that sometimes we sort of jokingly like homage it. And so, hey, right, let's, right. let's yeah. call ourselves homage. homage and students. you guys are sharing stuff all the time, right? We're sharing. Because you're sharing. also like, oh, look at this, yeah. look at that, right? And, and, so. and we're pushing each other too. We're, we're, this, is, this is when you're on the positive trajectory of learning and enthusiasm and exuberance. And, and it's, this constant, it's this constant push. And it's something that you can't always do when you're by yourself. But then you start getting like the energy of multiple people all in one place. And especially like guys who are driven, motivated to do great comics. At least the types of comics we we like. We like we like right. superhero comics. We like cool pictures. We wanted it to just. I mean, we weren't we weren't creating socially aware comics. We weren't doing anything <laughs> but the stuff that we were yeah. fans of. And all of us had read comics and were nerds and liked the same source material, the same comics, the same artists. And, and even though we didn't end up drawing or inking like those guys who came before us, they were still our source material and they came, we all came from the same place. So therefore there was sort of this. Dude, it's like a neighborhood vibe. Yeah. Like you yeah. guys literally formed your own yeah. club. Yeah. And yeah, we did. And then, and then at some point we decided, okay, we, you know what, we, we, we kind of got a penciling and inking 
thing going here. We could actually like bring in like a, a colorist. So then we brought in our buddy Joe Chido, who did some color work for us. And so now also we had a colorist in house. And then at some point we could bring in some assistants and then could kind of start a business going and then bring in like a letter. So it was like this very kind of step by step process as we would grow and we'd sort of start generating this, this cachet, this comic book kind of known quantity amongst the publishers and the, and the editors, they would kind of know that they could count on us to produce this certain quality oh, right. of work and become, and become self-sufficient. Mark Silvestri joined them. Michael Heisler was working with them. They had Carl Allstetter in there as an intern. And so Wills was basically getting his bullpen that he'd always wanted. Also, Wills Portacio was inking Alpha Flight and working over artists like Dave Ross, June Brigman, and eventually Jim Lee when he was drawing the book. Portacio inked him. Have you ever seen early Jim Lee? I think in a What If book, yeah. He wasn't Jim Lee yet. Yeah. And then Wills Portacio was inking him. And that's when you started to see the first inklings of who Jim Lee was going to become when Wills was inking him. And he's working out of Wills' studio. I think we'll come back to that later on. Wills needed to learn storytelling. He studied cinematography at the urging of Carl Potts, but he kept pushing the pencil and he finally started to get his own pencils into comics with the strike force moratorium number 10 i remember that was the first time i was exposed to wills i'd seen his stuff on strike force moratorium number one because my brother's brother had for some reason decided to experiment with lamination and so the first three or four issues of strike force moratorium he had laminated the covers just to sort of practice and i might i wonder if i still have those somewhere the downside to it was uh, the moisture from the adhesive bled through the inside of the cover so it made it partially translucent mucked up the inside cover but it was cool to have these laminated covers on the strike forces and so i'd seen them there but I didn't pay any attention to him because I don't think he was even credited on those pages when he did those. But when he did Strike Force Mortuary number 10, I knew the book looked different than when Ray Anderson did it. And he was Wills Portacio already by that point. He was already doing all the stylistic quirks. He was already doing like the speed lines and the over-rendering and you could see the Art Adams influence from having inked Art Adams in there. Plus Scott Williams was inking him. You had that team. He was already looking like the guy who we recognize as Wills Portacio there. The only downside to that issue though is it was told from the perspective of an alien character. And so he's drawing this funky looking alien throughout the issue kind of a monkey cat thing and so he's not drawing humans so you don't get to appreciate what he can do with human characters and he drew another issue or two after that but they were, you could like, see he didn't have as much time to spend on it so it's not nearly as heavily detailed as that first issue was I wanted to be an artist but I was just the inker so I, uh, they would somebody else would draw it and then I would ink it so that it could print and so what I would do was each page has a front and the back so the front has the artwork that I'm inking from a, a penciler and so <laughs> I turn it over and before I would FedEx, because back, back then we used FedEx, uh -huh. to hand it back to New York office, I would draw on the back. So as the editor is looking at his pages, his assistant is going, oh, I know about you. And so because of that, I got the Punisher job. And so I started drawing Punisher. And then while I was drawing Punisher, I was drawing Wolverine on the back. And so that's how I got the X-Men job. The Punisher book didn't catch on at first. You had that really successful miniseries. And then when they came out with the ongoing, it was drawn by Klaus Jansen. And I know I wasn't buying it because I hated the artwork, despised the artwork. I thought it was awesome. And I think that it had hurt the rollout of that book after there was so much heat from the miniseries. And so Dave Ross and Kevin Nolan did one issue, and then Wills Portacio did an issue, and he became the regular penciler on Punisher, and suddenly the Punisher sales started kicking up. People were really taking notice of Wills Portacio. Wills was still learning how to tell stories. He was still figuring out how to pencil. Scott Williams was helping him with a little flash factor, but he didn't have any input into the plot. He just followed Mike Barron's scripts at that time. One of the problems that Wills had with doing the Punisher is he would have these scary pair 
Paramilitary fans come up to him and talk about him like a little too into the weapons and too into the violence. You know, why don't you ever have somebody get kicked in the kneecap? I've kicked a bunch of guys in the kneecap and it always works. And he's like, dude, you're freaking me out. So he kind of wanted to get off the Punisher gig. But didn't he also do like a uh, Punisher armory? No, that wasn't, that wasn't him. him. Okay. No, I think that Elliot R. Brown and some other people did most it of the armory. It was armories. very much his style, if I remember correctly. If I remember correctly, the armory stuff didn't start showing up until Punisher War Journal. It was, oh, on, the, it was on the back of those gotcha. books. Those were more expensive. I think War, Punisher War Journal came out at $1.75 on the higher quality paper stock. Mm-hmm. And so they threw in that little extra something to make it worthwhile. Wills was doing Punisher. He left. And almost immediately, Jim Lee started doing Punisher War Journal. And by that point, you were seeing Jim Lee. He was already starting to be the guy that you picture when you picture Jim Lee. Again, Jim Lee keeps sort of following in Wills Portacio's footsteps. Wills was inking Alpha Flight. Then he came on and started penciling Alpha Flight. Wills did a Punisher book. Jim Lee did a Punisher book. Eventually, Wills Portacio was offered Uncanny X-Men. He turned it down. Because at that time, the X-Men were, you know, there was a Siege Perilous era, so he's all these more modern guys. And he'd grown up on the classic style X-Men, and he didn't want to have to deal with Psylocke and Jubilee and all that kind of shit. So he turned that gig down. Plus, he also knew that he was eventually going to get work in the X-Men offices because Bob Harris liked his stuff, and they were just waiting for the right project, the right opening. Jim Lee ended up doing those fill-in issues, and that's where Jim Lee's career really exploded. Because he did that, and he'd also done the Wolverine issues of Punisher War Journal. And so... As quick as they could, they pushed Mark Silvestri off of Uncanny and brought Jim Lee on the book full time. Meanwhile, Bulls Portacio was off fucking around with this two issue prestige format miniseries called The Legion of Night with Steve Gerber, which was dealing with a bunch of Marvel horror characters. But then he was offered the X Factor gig and he jumped at that because it was the classic X Men that he'd grown up with. He knew the Neil Adams period of X Men. So those were the guys he wanted to draw. Right before Jim Lee started his run on Uncanny X Men, all three of the homage guys, Bulls Portacio, Jim Lee, and Scott. Williams did that one issue of Uncanny X-Men number 268. My understanding is they did it in five days that Jim Lee did all the layouts. Wolves Portacio did most of the figures. Jim Lee did more of the backgrounds and some of the figures. And uh, Scott Williams did all the finishes. They knocked that book out in five days. And I still think it's one of the best issues of Uncanny X-Men ever done. I love the combination of their two art styles and they merged extremely well. You've been doing the X-Men, right? Yes, the, um, what they officially call the Uncanny X-Men. That's right. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, the X-Men and the Uncanny X-Men are two yeah. different. They're, they're two different teams, but see, uh-huh. the, the team I'm working on, the Uncanny X-Men, is, or what we could call the original X-Men, right? It's made up of Marvel Girl, Bobby Drake, mm-hmm. Iceman, mm-hmm. Ice uh, Warren Worthington. He's now the Archangel. Oh, he's now the Archangel, right? Yeah, he's a little more... It's a, it's sinister times, so he's got to be a little more sinister. <laughs> and who else is, is a part of the group? She's not a part of the original team. There's Storm, Scott Standen. Obviously, Jim Lee and Wolves Portacio had a lot of shared influences. Scott Williams in particular noted Michael Golden, John Byrne, Kevin Nolan, Barry Windsor Smith. And you can see those influences and in how Jim Lee sort of diverged from Wolves Portacio. But there were definitely similarities, especially because they were both looking at anime and manga at that time. They both acknowledged the influence of Akira and Appleseed in particular. Yeah, I've been going on for a while now. At what point were you introduced to Wills Portacio? X-Men. I actually own some of the artwork that he drew. Which issues of X-Men though? When he started the main series? You didn't see his X-Factor stuff before that? What X-Factor was he doing at the time? Oh yeah, that's what the Apocalypse story arc. Right. Yeah, that's right. No, I picked up that. I picked up, I noticed them, um, I guess yeah, I guess it would be X-Factor then. Because I remember I picked it up because his style was very distinctive. Yeah. Um, so you didn't read any of his Punisher stuff before that? No, I might have. I wasn't a huge Punisher fan when I was younger. I was more into the X-Men, the X-Factor, Basically, all the Xbooks. Mutant, uh, not Mutant X, um, was Exterminators. Jeez, I'm trying to think what else was out. Who drew Exterminators? I forgot. Was that John Bogdanov or somebody else? Uh, you got me, dude. I just remember that came out, I think, right after Inferno. The, yeah, yeah. 
Because Inferno series came out, so I was reading X Factor, X Men, Exterminators. Let's see, so X Factor during I think Excalibur was out at that time, wasn't it? Yeah, X Factor, yeah, definitely. And so that was the stuff I was reading at the time. I was very big into the X Men at so the time. So Inferno, Walt Simonson was still doing it. When Simonson left X Factor, John Bogdanov started doing it, and he did it up through the Extinction Agenda, and then immediately afterwards, when they got Wolf Potassi on there. Okay, you got me on that front. Okay, they were ready to get John Bogdanov off the book, and they. Basically, had Louise Simonson write a story featuring Japanese characters, specifically to woo him onto the book. And that's part of why he jumped on, was because he wanted to be able to draw, you know, Iceman's Asian girlfriend and, yeah. and all these other Asian characters. But didn't he do the one, that one X Factor I'm, I'm thinking of, where the Beast and Iceman are being tracked by a woman who can mutate mutants? She turns them into, like, slave monsters? Because the cover is, like, some kind of monster and the Beast and Iceman are hanging, like, earrings or something like that. I don't know. I, I vaguely remember a cover like that. You like that run of x-factor with apocalypse and the yeah, dark riders and everything. yeah but again that was one where i was more into the art and not so much the storytelling i don't remember if i enjoyed the stories to tell you the truth it's been so long i remember the artwork very distinctively because i did like his design of apocalypse yeah he did he, he did a good job yeah. with apocalypse he leaned really, him out a little bit he did what yeah a little bit if i can remember correct i mean i, I like that because it made him look less like uh dark side yeah he looked more mechanical mm-hmm. but i don't remember i just i couldn't tell you the stories but i remember the artwork i remember the covers i remember at that time they would put uh, the little two to three issue uh, story arcs into one book. So you could buy like that book. And then you had the other one with the Wolverine and the Brood. And they put those in those story, like mm-hmm. a little 64 like a page giant. Yeah, it was yeah. like a little 64 page giant where they would put like two or three issues in there of that story arc. But that's really all I remember. I mean, up to that point, I didn't really, I wasn't, I follow artists, but I didn't know the artists who they were. I was just like, oh, I like this. And I would buy it. Yeah. That was it. There's one comic shop that I found that was built into the side of a grocery store. And I could get there on my skateboard back when I had a skateboard. You rode a skateboard? I definitely You got probably called. sat on it and pulled yourself with your no, hands or something. I definitely got called out as a poser. I did briefly dress in a slightly skaterish style, but I never tried whoa, to. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're doing a whole fucking podcast on this just right now. I've known you 20 years, man. This is something new to me. There was a very brief period where I attempted the backward baseball cap. Didn't take. Holy shit. Did not take. In part because I was called out as a poser. And also, it's when I realized that you were not officially a skater if all you did was skate in a straight line two places as a mode of transportation <laughs> so wait, wait were you wearing crisscross what's crisscross no you weren't a skater yeah exactly that's what i'm saying my brother was a skater i had a skateboard because my father tried to make me a skater like my brother and now, my now was it a real skateboard from a skate shop or was it one from toys r us no it was a real skateboard because they went to actual skate shops okay. and where i was bored out of my mind as they checked out what kind of wheels they wanted and shit because my father wanted me to be included in the group he got me man, a skateboard. You huh Try to man you up a little bit. Try to man me up a little bit. I admitted. So he got me a skateboard. And so my stepfather at that time was working security. He customized the board for me. He painted it jet black. And then he put a fucking wicked sick Punisher skull on it. If I remember correctly, I had the grip tape on the top of it. And then the, uh, the uh, Punisher logo was carved into the grip tape. It was a pretty sweet looking board, actually, which is why it got fucking stolen. <laughs> so, yeah. Story of your life. Yeah. But he actually did a really good job with it. I mean, the, the great thing about the Punisher Skull is it's not hard to draw. You just take your time with it. You can take a ruler out, and you can pretty much get it down. But it was a great-looking board. It was pretty much wasted on me because I wasn't exactly doing ollies and shit. Like I said, it was a mode of transportation. <laughs> it, it was basically roller skates. But, 
you know, more I eat, manly roller skates. No, actually, I think roller skates would have been more butch than what I was doing because it takes a more skill to pull off roller skates. A skateboard, an asshole can stand on a skateboard while you're doing is keeping the one foot on there and propelling yourself essentially. I mean, I put both feet on the board at times, but then those were also those times where I went skating, skidding without the board across the, the asphalt. I still, if you notice the scar that's on my arm right here, you mean the that, one in that, the, the the shape of the Punisher skull? Yes. Yeah, cute. It on the now concrete. promise me the next time you tell that story, it was because you were doing a half pipe and you missed the trick and you landed on the other side of the pipe instead of skiing across a fucking parking lot at like a stop and go. You don't see Tony Hawk holding a microphone I, in front of you right now? You could literally be Tony Hawk. I, I see it. I was a big Wills Protasio fan. When Wills Protasio was doing Punisher, I was in love with the Punisher. He was my favorite character at that point in time. I loved Wills Protasio's artwork on that book. He was my favorite artist at the time. I was so into it and it didn't click with me that Protasio stopped doing the interiors. He did the covers for a few months after he quit doing the interiors. I bought a few issues where he didn't do the interiors, waiting for him to come back. Once I started to think that maybe he's not going to come back, I think it was actually the first issue that he didn't do the cover for and he did nothing with the book. I dropped the Punisher like a bad habit. Right around that same time, I jumped on a Punisher War Journal and I carried that for most of Jim Lee's run before mm-hmm. dropping that. With X-Factor, I had always disliked X-Factor. I tried to read it over, over and over again. I, I felt like a compulsion to read it for a long time there because I was an X-Men fan. You know how it was. We, you yeah. kind of felt the need to read the entire family. But I always did it begrudgingly and I never was into Walt Simonson's artwork on that book. I just never felt like he was a good fit for the X titles. I actually like John Bogdanoff better, you know. I, I It turned me on to John Bogdanoff partway through Extinction Agenda because I like the way he drew G. Gray specifically. Mm-hmm. There's this one sequence where Jean Gray is kissing Wolverine as he's like dying and she's trying to like kind of say goodbye to some degree. And her body's pressing up against Wolverine's and you've got a real sense of the volume of her. The bodies next to each other and stuff. And I thought it was just fucking hot. And so I, I got into John Bogdanoff at that point, but he was gone right afterwards. I missed the first few Wolf's Potasio issues and I'd also missed Legion of Night because it came out of a time where I a, couldn't afford it, and B, it was in comic shop only. So I think I didn't see it until the second issue, and I've yet to ever read that story. I kind of want to, but I've never had a good reason to go back and find it, aside from the artwork. But then when I started seeing his issues of X-Factor turning up on the newsstand, I bought those, and I thought that story was great. They almost immediately let him and Jim Lee start plotting X-Factor, and the book immediately got more interesting because they were doing like cool stuff with the apocalypse. I thought the Dark Riders were some badass-looking characters. That was when they were setting up the whole cable thing where they were getting rid of Nate, yeah. Nate Summers uh, and... And you, everybody kind of already knew that he was going to become Cable. But also, as much as I enjoyed Scott Williams' inks over Wills on Punisher, I think Art T-Bear is still the best inker Portacio has ever had. And so the, his issues of X-Factor, I think, are some of the best Art he ever produced. They are just fantastic looking. Archangel's design, I thought, was cool. But I, I just never got into the, how he was drawn by Walt Simonson. Yeah. And then when Portacio drew him, I was like, oh, shit, this is the Archangel I've been looking for this whole time. Who was the one that gave him the helmet? Archangel. When he went from Angel to Archangel? Yeah. Simonson. Simonson, okay. That's right. All of a sudden, I didn't mind buying X-Factor because I dug all these new villains and I just loved the artwork. And the story was compelling. You know, it was interesting. There was a lot of stuff going on. It was was cool. So do you have anything else to add on the, the art front, though? No, man. That was it. So Jim Lee was bailing on Uncanny to launch the new X-Men title. They needed an artist to take over on Candy because they didn't want that book to lose its heat. So they got Wills Protasio to do it. It basically fell into his lap. But he wanted to do the original X-Men. So they were going to have to put more of the original X-Men into the new Uncanny team to help woo him onto that title. When they got the first script by Claremont for the first issue of Uncanny that Wills was going to do, which was going to come out you know, the same month as X-Men number one, Claremont had written an extended 
picnic sequence where the X-Men were just hanging out and talking. It was almost like the final straw for Bob Harris. So he took Wilson, Jim Lee aside, and they basically plotted a whole new story for X-Men 281. And that was the breaking point for Chris Claremont, and that's when he finally quit the books, is when they were going to just completely throw out his plot and do something entirely different because they weren't happy with this whole picnic thing. And also, Claremont and Harris, I don't think, ever got along very well. They, I think they were at loggerheads But what was the on. point of the picnic? Like, just was it kind of just a lazy issue? Or? Well, you know, it's just like the X-Men always had the baseball issues where they would yeah. just hang out and bullshit. I'm sure it's a character building moment, but Harris was looking to like, you know, reignite the X-Men after they had sort of a, a lull period before Jim Lee came on. And then Jim Lee just completely spiked the sales and spiked fan enthusiasm. And I think it was getting to the point where Jim was already co-plotting the book with Claremont. Jim was the exciting artist bringing the exciting ideas. Claremont was the guy who'd been doing the book for 16 years. And really, let's be honest, the last few years of Uncanny X-Men that he was doing, especially before Jim Lee came on, weren't that great. You know, he really did feel like he was kind of burnt out and, yeah. and kind of spinning his wheels. And uh, I, I think they were, it was just time, you know, I, I was really resist Claremont getting pushed off at the time. In retrospect, it was probably time for him to go, but they didn't handle it well at all. And they were also giving the plotting chores to these two guys that for the most part had only done a few issues of X Factor. And they're turning over one of the flagship books of comics to these dudes. But Bob Harris had walking orders. He was like, okay, you're going to do this issue. We're going to kill off a bunch of these characters and we're going to have like a big splash for you doing this book. So Wilson never wanted to write comics. He didn't have any great aspirations, even though he felt that if he applied himself, he could be a great writer. But it wasn't something he was trying to do at that time. But him and Jim Lee ended up having the plot Uncanny X-Men for a few months there. And Jim Lee ended up plotting main X-Men title for most of his run on that book. And so it, it was just like a circumstance. Like, we're going to have to do this. But Harris knew what he wanted to do. So to a large degree, the homage guys and scripter John Byrne were basically doing what Bob Harris was telling them to do. For instance, the creation of Bishop. What happens is the second issue of Uncanny X-Men that Will and Jim were doing, Bob Harris calls up Will Spathosio and says, I need you to create a new character for this next issue. And you've got two weeks to do it. So Wilson's thinking about it and he wants to do a Philippine warrior guy. You know, he wants to actually get a, a prominent Filipino into the comic books because, you know, even though he didn't grow up in the Philippines, he'd really rediscovered his Filipino identity and it's a defining characteristic for the rest of his life, basically. And he comes up with a few ideas about how to do it. When I went to doing Bishop, we actually had a pseudo background for him. In days of future past, Bishop was basically the warden of the prison that imprisoned all of the mutants. And so I decided, hey, let's let's do kind of a military theme with his look. While I was creating Bishop back then, I was creating him with a friend of mine, our assistant in the studio, because I had a studio with Jim Lee and Scott Williams, and we needed an assistant. So we brought Carl Altstetter in. Carl now is um, one of the toy designers for Mattel. But back in the day, he was a teen kid. He was our target audience. And that was one of our image secrets having somebody there who had the pulse. And going back to the mullet, Carl suggested the mullet. What he really was suggesting though was Jerry Curls because he was a big Prince fan. And I actually fought that. And then I finally drew him with the mullet and Scott and Jim said, man, that, that actually looks kind of cool. And so we stayed with the mullet. <laughs> So they go back to Bob Harris after two weeks, and Wilson's giving him the outline of the character. But before I could say that, he said, we have a lot of black kids writing letters all the time to us. Would it fit with the character if he was from the black community? Right. And of course, I go, 
No problem. And then they were off the book pretty quickly because the image started to happen. And so he's complained that he's never gotten to do the art, the story he always had in mind for Bishop. There's a lot of the stuff that he came up with, like him being a cop. But Portacio announced a few months later that he was going to go do image. Bob Harris like, okay, you're going to have to give me a few more issues of Uncanny and then you can go and we'll be on good terms. So he, you never got to see Will Portacio's ideas for Bishop. What do you think of Bishop, though? With some of that. Uh, I, honestly, from the comics, very little. I mean, I remember more from the cartoon and maybe the movies, but I, the comic book, I just remember he was a time cop with two other officers just like him, and they were chasing someone. Weren't they chasing Gambit? Trevor Fitzroy. Oh, there you go. That's right. And that's about it. I remember the first issue of him appearing went into multiple reprints. Yeah. I immediately liked Bishop. He was one of the reasons why I stuck with Uncanny X-Men as long as I did. I never gravitated toward Cable. I appreciated what he brought to New Mutants. I don't know. It just didn't do anything for me. He's never done anything for me. I've tried to like Cable a bunch of times over the years, and it's never taken. I do feel like Bishop was basically a knockoff of Cable, but I just liked him immediately far more. I liked him as this kind of brusque cop dude from the future. I liked, again, I liked how he bounced off the other x-men i like the design of course i love wills patacio's artwork and so for me that was like the last great x-men character that's the end of my time period loving the x-men the capstone on that was the introduction of bishop and then after that that for me those books went off the rails and i never recovered from the departure of claremont and then the departure of the image guys but especially patacio because once he was gone i lasted a little bit after that but my love of the books was gone and i i ended up bailing around issue 300. I came to the Philippines just a vacation really for two months. I just needed a break. This was after 16 years of working in comics. I was raised in the U.S., but I'm from Philippine heritage. And so that was my kind of nationalistic period, wanting to find my roots. So every year I went back to the Philippines, and the guys knew that. So, and that was usually around Christmas for the whole month of December I'd go home. And so I'm about to get on the flight, and Jim Lee calls me up, and he says... Uh, Hey, Wills, there's uh, something happening, and uh, it's going to be really cool, and it's with a lot of people, and it's going to be real cool. Okay, cool. What is it? Uh, I can't tell you yet, but when you get back, I'll tell you about it. So I go off to the Philippines thinking, Jim's Jim. So then a month later, I come back, and actually, it's already done. It's already happened. Jim goes, you know, the guys want you to be part of it. What do you think? I, I call my friend up, and that was Scott Williams. He said, yeah, this will be cool. All of us were the popular artists for Marvel at that time. Mm-hmm. So we were doing all their top books, and we left, and we, then we decided to do our own books, but superhero in. Marvel stock dropped 16%. It sounds very scary, but it wasn't that scary. We learned that the industry actually was was not a very complicated. Publishing a comic book actually isn't very complicated. But it was, again, a tactical move on our part that when we left Marvel at the top, and we were the top tier, all that other stuff then goes along with it, and we were smart enough to know that. We were able to get the printing credit that Marvel had with the printers, and with the distributors, so it to be Hinyun, we actually had no out-of-pocket expense. Images already happened, you know? So he was always like this last guy, the straggler that got yeah. sort of almost like an afterthought he gets introduced. And it kills me because this guy co-founded Image Studios. And Wills is the last guy to hear about Image Comics, and the last guy to be brought in as a founder. Kind of irks me because like this guy is one, like, one of your closest friends. And in fact, Wills comes back, and after Jim Lee's talking to him about it, he goes to talk to Scott to see what he thinks. Scott already knows about Image Comics. He's already on board Image Comics. And he's like, yeah, this is going to be cool. You should do it. And Wills like, okay, I'll go ahead and do it. So he... 
he really does feel like an afterthought amongst the Image founders. He's not at that first big press conference that they had with Wizard Magazine where they were announcing yeah. all their books and shit. They just said, oh yeah, and Wilson's still on the books too and he's going to work with Coach Claremont on a project. When they're announcing all the other Image founding books, that and Jim Valentino didn't have Shadowhawk yet. He was still going to do the Pact back then or the others. I don't remember which of the two. Portacio really resented some of these guys that came in after Image had gotten started. There was a bunch of guys that were immediately down or very early on had decided they were going to join in with Image and do some stuff but there were also a bunch of guys that were like we'll wait and see we'll see how image turns out yeah. and when they, and when the sales came back they were big then all of a sudden they want to be in the image club and he just always resented that these guys didn't have the courage to go out and do this and pioneer this they just wanted to reap the benefits of the efforts that these guys had done will definitely felt like he was a founder and he definitely understood what they were trying to do and believed in it and still supported them from the very beginning he didn't get a lot of credit or support it seemed like in return when he was still trying to figure out what he was going to do he was interviewed he did a wizard cover story featuring Bishop. He was interviewed in the issue before Image was officially announced as like a full big on thing. At that time, it was just like some little few miniseries that Malibu was going to publish, right? So they're interviewing Wills and he talks about how two of his favorite combo characters of all time were Deathlock and Silver Surfer. Even after these enormous changes were made to them and they experienced this incredible adversity, they still were true to themselves even though they were radically transformed. And so you can see where he was going mentally with the characters that would eventually become what works. Wizard in number issue number eight asked him what his plans were with Image Press. They were never called Image Press except in that one interview it seemed like. And he basically said he didn't know yet and he thought he'd like to be something like Conan, but Everybody else was doing superhero type stuff, so he was still figuring out what he was going to do. In Wizard number nine, Wolf Potasio's absent. Jim Leach says that Wolf is going to do a project with Chris Claremont later in the year, but Chris Claremont was in Paris, Wolf Potasio was in the Philippines, and it ended up not manifesting, although I think it became Huntsman. Scott Williams was an image earlier than Wolf Potasio was. He was inking Wildcats, and he eventually inked Mark Silvestri on Cyberforce, and he inked J. Scott Campbell when he started doing Gen 13. So Scott Williams ended up doing more work for Image Comics than Wolf Potasio already did. He was in the group earlier than but because he's an inker he never got treated as a founder so that's kind of a drag because scott williams makes jim lee i think i think that the basics of jim lee are solid but if you ever look at jim lee's pencils it's never as good as when scott williams inks him scott williams helped to define wills Protasio as well but wills was already this great artist even before he met scott williams i think that they fed off each other but a lot of that image style a lot of what we understand to be image comics i think was created by wills Protasio and scott williams partially largely influenced i think by arthur adams and the anime manga influence and I think that they created Jim Lee I don't think Jim Lee was Jim Lee until he was part of Homage and fed off of the influences of Scott Williams and Wills Portacio and yet it's always been about Jim Lee Jim Lee's always been the star and it's always felt like Wills and Scott are just way in the background and I've never felt like they've gotten their due in creating the image style but I, I love Wills Portacio I was a fan of Wills Portacio before I ever heard of Jim Lee and I've been a fan of Wills Portacio longer because even though there was a period where I would favor Jim Lee, especially during that golden period where he was on Uncanny X-Men. Once Will Sportazio came back on doing X titles, he went right back to being my favorite again. So I love his style. I love his work. I love the darkness. I love the oddness. I love the, his unique take. Nobody looks quite like Will Sportazio. He has a lot of those image stylistic quirks, but he did it first. The only people that really were doing that before him were like the proto-image artists. Yeah. I think that Jim Lee took the basics of Will Sportazio's style and added more mainstream influences particularly guys like John Byrne and Michael Golden and he has a more fan favorite more palatable version of what Wills Potasio was doing but I think Wills was Jim Lee and taught Jim Lee to be Jim Lee to a large degree I don't feel like he ever got the credit for that and then so when it came time to image where okay we're going to do this and oh no 
We've got to actually create something first before we try. You know, this is our own stuff. This is not, you know, we're not working for somebody like Marvel. And so, of course, you know, we were all practical enough. Okay, do what you're always told as a writer, right? Yeah. Do what you know. And that's what I knew. I knew military guys. And then um, Brandon Choi, who wrote both Wildcats and Wetworks, we lucked out because he was in San Diego, other than being Jim's best friend, he was in San Diego because he was trying out for the SEALs. But he, I think, sprained his ankle on the course. And so was thinking about what to do, whether to go back into law or, or, or join up with us. And it turns out he was, obviously, he was going to join the He wanted to be a, a Navy SEAL. So we got together and hit it off real well. And he then brought into the mix, oh, uh, classic monsters, the copyright's up. It's free now. It's open. We can use it. And so, oh, cool. We needed an enemy. Wetworks debuted in a four-page backup feature in the second issue of Wildcats. And then because of production delays and personal tragedies, no more material was produced for better part of two years. Technically, the Wetworks team has been introduced as of that story early on in the Image days. And so that's why we're going to address it early, especially since Will Sportasio was a founding member of Image. And we don't want to have to wait years to address him. Or what happens in the story? What did you think about it? I wasn't really sure what the hell happened in it. <laughs> It's true. Um, did he beat up a bat or something about killing something with a blade and getting a, he wanted their weapon. And the way I read it, it didn't make sense. Introduces Joker and I learned the term. What did it say? Uh, oh shit, dude. I don't remember. Dude, it was three pages. I, I don't know what happened. Some characters got killed with a knife. Something about a, a blaster or a grenade launcher. The story starts scene, I guess you would call it, because uh, we don't know what's led to these events. But Jackson Dane, who yeah. is the leader of Wetworks, who's got gold-plated either armor or skin they don't clarify in the issue he's getting shot by bullets but they're bouncing off of him it doesn't really matter to him they reveal in the second pages that he's being attacked by vampires wielding heavy machine weapons and he okay that's what i thought yeah he kills the shit out of them particularly he shoots one in the face with a grenade launcher just because he feels like making a mess and then on the last page the rest of his team shows up and everybody's got gold painted skin and they're asking him he's okay he's like yeah i'm fine and that's the whole story so then i did read it right because i was like i have no fucking idea what's going on what'd you think of the art uh, I mean, it's his art. It's very distinctive. I own some of it, some of his X-Men stuff. What pages um, do you own? I didn't get to clarify that the first time you mentioned it. With like Polaris, Colossus. I don't know. I, I picked it up. The guy mislabeled it. That's back, back when I was buying all that comic book art on eBay. He mislabeled it as the wrong artist. And I remember there was just a thumb clip. And, and I was like, that's not the artist he's saying it is. So I was like, I'll put $50 down and see what happens. Because that's all he was asking for. And I got a notification that, hey, you won. I'm like, holy shit. So, but it's a nice piece. It has Colossus, Polaris. One, is, yeah. one of the X-Men pages he did. But it looks really nice. It was really clean. But that's the one I own. I'm guessing if it's Polaris, that's probably during the Mirror Island saga with the Shadow King uh, that led up into the X-Genesis where they split off the teams? No, I think it's even earlier than that. I think some of his early, early stuff. Mm. I want to say it's the one... I'll, I'll look it up. I'll, I'll find you the, the book that it's in. Okay. But uh, I have it in my... Yeah, I have it in my uh, on my wall. Uh, so any thoughts on the Wetworks pages? A prime example of great art in horrible storytelling that's about it the artwork looks great the concept looks great if i were to read that i probably would have never picked up the book because it made no sense whatsoever (laughs) 
you're doing the names though, man. Yeah, I know. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're just going to do the mail real quick. No big deal. We got attention from the 108 Sage, All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, Dr. Ange, Anthony, the insomniac drunken monk of Alterna fans, Biko Django, Bone Dragon Comics, Bud Winkle, Carlos Digital, Charlton Hero, Chris of Bad Books for Beginners, Class 1000, a Marvel Superheroes live RPG, Coffee and Comics, Cyber Today, Does Whatever John Wilson Can, Dr. Dark, Dr. Gene Ordologist, Ed Moore, Fanholes Podcast, Filth Burger, Greek God, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, The Hoopers, Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer DeRoss, Keith G. Baker, Longbox Crusade, Man Brain Podcast, Max Romero, Merch, Nedhead, Odell Abner Dracula, Paul Mayberry, who was the artist on the chapel strip we were talking about last oh, time. Okay. Podcast partners, Q or question, hashtag rehire James Gunn, hashtag believe survivors, Quentin Beck, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, Richard Field, Ryan at Kelton the Cop, S. Lycoparasicum, Sean, quote, at Jack is a twat, unquote, Gap, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sean Phillips, Siskoid, Steve Chung, Steve Sellers, Tim Price, Tiny Toy Robot Z, Trucker Talk, Vanilla Circus Limited, Brangian Vigilante, Warlock Thanos Podcast, aka Resurrections, and Xenozoic Zeta Files. Odell Abner Dracula wrote, Psyched about the new Spawnometer podcast. They're starting to cover issues I didn't read, and the supplemental image material is always great. Hashtag Image Comics, Spawn, Hellspawn, and Chapel. Odell actually drew two versions of Chapel, inspired by our episode. Oh, cool. We gave someone inspiration. I want to say hi to my friend Vaginal Bulge out there. She knows who she is. That's what a good friend of mine, that's her nickname. We call her Vaginal Bulge. And so she's listening to the show now? No, I'm pretty sure not, but still. Oh, and listen to our new rock band, Accidental Lesbians. <laughs> We're like Veruca Salt meets Kiss meets Nine Inch Nails with a little bit of Smashing Pumpkins and a little bit of Guns N' Roses with a little mixture of Miles Davis. Add in a little bit of Two Live Crew. And you swirl it all together with some uh, salt and pepper. I can't get the fucker to enlarge, so we're just going to look at it in the, the tweet itself. I've had that problem, too. So Chapel writes, uh, hey, you guys, remember when it was me that killed Spawn? That's pretty cool. And... It's like Mr. Burns, though. That's <laughs> Chapel. Excellent. No, actually, Lenny from uh, The Simpsons says Chapel. I can see a little bit, yeah. And then one that says, thanks, Frank. Oh, nice. Why just Frank, man? Uh, uh, yeah, for some reason, I get uh, due attention, I feel like. You know yeah. I mean? it's, a, it's, a, it's a group effort. It's a combo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the dancing monkey here, man. I'm the one that's performing. He just grounds it. He just grinds his organ over and over and over. Two-handed pepper okay. shaker. Yeah. Jeffrey Brown wrote, Chapel is kind of interesting character out of the Liefeld Youngblood set. Our boy Illegal Machine wrote, As I said on our Facebook page, I've got nothing to do with this show, but I love it. Frank can fix it to a great job. Production, sound clips are all perfect. And then uh, finally, Odell Abner Dracula came back one more time and said, A Jason Voorhees, Schwarzenegger character mashup sounds really compelling for some reason. If I come home from a con or the local comic shop with Youngblood Strikefeld back issues, I'm blaming Frank and Fix It. <laughs> hey, you got name drop that time. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing the dancing monkey who's doing this for your enjoyment. <laughs> oh, shit. This monkey rather be laying down right now. He's tired. He's tired, monkey. Welcome to the Dreamer Comics Podcast YouTube channel. I'm your host, Omar Swahi, and I'm here to tell you about our channel. Each week, we interview a different comic book creator about all their tips and tricks into making some of the industry's best comics. Who's gonna die tonight? Who's gonna die tonight? You're gonna die tonight. 
right, hello everyone. My name is uh, Jacob Williams. And I'm Dane Lamont. And we are your host for America's premier Punisher podcast, Punisher Body Count. Oh, uh, yeah. What we aim to do here at Punisher Body Count is talk about the Punisher first and foremost. We're going to talk about the new comics, the old comics, multimedia Punisher. Punisher is a real fascinating character. And at the end of the day, very entertaining. Punisher has probably made up a good, I'd say 25% of our conversations <laughs> of just the ludicrousness of some of the plots and just the great, awesome moments you get from a Marine that just doesn't give a fuck anymore. Let's go ahead and give out some uh, contact information in, in case people want to leave any comments or questions or sure. so if you know anyone wants to get hold of us they can send us an email at punisherbodycount all one word at gmail.com and then of course there's always the uh, website punisherbodycount uh, all one word dot com and you can also leave comments on the site as well here to tell you about an exciting new podcast called wet work now i know what you're thinking what the hell is wet work digging ditches in the rain the latest in personal sexual lubrication products no well yes but that's not what i'm here to discuss wet work is a podcast about vocations most people think they know the ins and outs of even the most common jobs they're wrong. Things are often not as they seem, even in the most outwardly mundane occupations. On Wetwork, we expose the deep, sometimes dark secrets of what it takes, and the little-known tips, tricks, and foibles of the trade. Our show's title has its roots in a euphemism for institutionally sanctioned assassinations, but we at the podcast don't believe work has to involve murder to get messy. This is Wetwork. I am Dan Lauer. Do not press pause. Visit wetworkpodcast.com for more details. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell!